Chapter Twenty One of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Twenty One: The Colleges of Unreason. I had now been a visitor with the Nosnibors for some five or six months, and though I had frequently proposed to leave them and take apartments of my own, they would not hear of my doing so. I suppose they thought I should be more likely to fall in love with Zulora if I remained, but it was my affection for Arowena that kept me. During all this time both Arowena and myself had been dreaming, and drifting towards an avowed attachment, but had not dared to face the real difficulties of the position. Gradually, however, matters came to a crisis in spite of ourselves, and we got to see the true state of the case all too clearly. One evening we were sitting in the garden, and I had been trying in every stupid roundabout way to get her to say that she should be at any rate sorry for a man if he really loved a woman who would not marry him. I had been stammering and blushing, and been as silly as anyone could be, and I suppose had pained her by fishing for pity for myself in such a transparent way, and saying nothing about her own need of it. At any rate, she turned all upon me with a sweet, sad smile, and said, Sorry? I am sorry for myself. I am sorry for you, and I am sorry for everyone. The words had no sooner crossed her lips than she bowed her head, gave me a look as though I were to make no answer, and left me. The words were few and simple, but the manner with which they were uttered was ineffable. The scales fell from my eyes, and I felt that I had no right to try and induce her to infringe one of the most inviolable customs of her country, as she needs must do if she were to marry me. I sat for a long while thinking and when I remembered the sin and shame and misery which an unrighteous marriage, for as such it would be held in Erewhon, would entail, I became thoroughly ashamed of myself for having been so long self-blinded. I write coldly now, but I suffered keenly at the time, and should probably retain a much more vivid recollection of what I felt had not all ended so happily. As for giving up the idea of marrying Erewhona, it never so much as entered my head to do so. The solution must be found in some other direction than this. The idea of waiting till somebody married Zulora was to be no less summarily dismissed. To marry Arowina at once in Erewhon, this had already been abandoned. There remained, therefore, but one alternative, and that was to run away with her, and get her with me to Europe, where there would be no bar to our union save my own impecuniosity a matter which gave me no uneasiness. To this obvious and simple plan I could see but two objections that deserved the name. The first, that perhaps Arowina would not come. The second, that it was almost impossible for me to escape even alone, for the king had himself told me that I was to consider myself a prisoner on parole, and that the first sign of my endeavouring to escape would cause me to be sent to one of the hospitals for incurables. Besides, I did not know the geography of the country, and even were I to try and find my way back, I should be discovered long before I had reached the pass over which I had come. How, then, could I hope to be able to take Arowina with me? 
for days and days I turned these difficulties over in my mind, and at last hit upon as wild a plan as was ever suggested by extremity. This was to meet the second difficulty. The first gave me less uneasiness, for when Arowena and I next met after our interview in the garden, I could see that she had suffered not less acutely than myself. I resolved that I would have another interview with her, the last for the present, that I would then leave her, and set to work upon maturing my plan as fast as possible. We got a chance of being alone together, and then I gave myself the loose rein, and told her how passionately and devotedly I loved her. She said little in return, but her tears, which I could not refrain from answering with my own, and the little she did say were quite enough to show me that I should meet with no obstacle from her. Then I asked her whether she would run a terrible risk which we should share in common if, in case of success, I could take her to my own people to the home of my mother and sisters, who would welcome her very gladly. At the same time I pointed out that the chances of failure were far greater than those of success, and that the probability was that even though I could get so far as to carry my design into execution, it would end in death to us both. I was not mistaken in her. She said that she believed I loved her as much as she loved me, and that she would brave anything if I could only assure her that what I proposed would not be thought dishonorable in England. She could not live without me, and would rather die with me than alone, that death was perhaps the best for us both, that I must plan, and that when the hour came I was to send for her, and trust her not to fail me. And so after many tears and embraces we tore ourselves away. I then left the Nosnaboards, took a lodging in the town, and became melancholy to my heart's content. Arowena and I used to see each other sometimes, for I had taken to going regularly to the musical banks. But Mrs. Nosnibor and Zelora both treated me with considerable coldness. I felt sure that they suspected me. Arowena looked miserable, and I saw that her purse was now always as full as she could fill it with musical bank money, much fuller than of old. Then the horrible thought occurred to me that her health might break down, and that she might be subjected to a criminal prosecution. Oh, how I hated Erewhon at this time! I was still received at court, but my good looks were beginning to fail me, and I was not such an adept at concealing the effects of pain as the Erewhonians are. I could see that my friends began to look concerned about me, and was obliged to take a leaf out of Mahina's book and pretend to have developed a taste for drinking. I even consulted a straightener as though this were so, and submitted to much discomfort. This made matters better for a time, but I could see that my friends thought less highly of my constitution as my flesh began to fall away. I was told that the poor made an outcry about my pension, and I saw a stinging article in an anti-ministerial paper in which the writer went so far as to say that my having light hair reflected little credit upon me, inasmuch as I had been reported to have said that it was a common thing in the country from which I came. I have reason to believe that Mr. Nosnibor himself inspired this article. Presently it came round to me that the king had begun to dwell upon my having been possessed of a watch, and to say that I ought to be treated medicinally for having told him a lie about the balloons. I saw misfortune gathering round me in every direction, 
and felt that I should have need of all my wits and a good many more if I was to steer myself and Arowina to a good conclusion. There were some who continued to show me kindness, and strange to say I received the most from the very persons from whom I should have least expected it. I mean from the cashiers of the musical banks. I had made the acquaintance of several of these persons, and now that I frequented their banks, they were inclined to make a good deal of me. One of them, seeing that I was thoroughly out of health, though of course he pretended not to notice it, suggested that I should take a little change of air and go down with him to one of the principal towns, which was some two or three days' journey from the metropolis, and the chief seat of the colleges of unreason. He assured me that I should be delighted with what I saw, and that I should receive a most hospitable welcome. I determined, therefore, to accept the invitation. We started two or three days later, and after a night on the road we arrived at our destination towards evening. It was now full spring, and as nearly as might be ten months since I had started with Chowbuck on my expedition, but it seemed more like ten years. The trees were in their freshest beauty, and the air had become warm without being oppressively hot. And having lived so many months in the metropolis, the sight of the country and the country villages through which we passed refreshed me greatly. But I could not forget my troubles. The last five miles or so were the most beautiful part of the journey, for the country became more undulating and the woods were more extensive. But the first sight of the city of the colleges itself was the most delightful of all. I cannot imagine that there can be any fairer in the whole world, and I expressed my pleasure to my companion and thanked him for having brought me. We drove to an inn in the middle of the town, and then, while it was still light, my friend, the cashier, whose name was Thames, took me for a stroll in the streets and in the courtyards of the principal colleges. Their beauty and interest were extreme. It was impossible to see them without being attracted towards them, and I thought to myself that he must be indeed an ill-grained and ungrateful person who can have been a member of one of these colleges without retaining an affectionate feeling towards it for the rest of his life. All my misgivings gave way at once when I saw the beauty and venerable appearance of this delightful city. For half an hour I forgot both myself and Arowena. After supper Mr. Thims told me a good deal about the system of education which is here practiced. I already knew a part of what I heard, but much was new to me, and I obtained a better idea of the Erwonian position than he had done hitherto. Nevertheless, there were parts of the scheme of which I could not comprehend the fitness, although I fully admit that this inability was probably the result of my having been trained so differently, and to my being then much out of sorts. The main feature in their system is the prominence which they give to a study which I can only translate by the word hypothetics. They argue thus, that to teach a boy merely the nature of the things which exist in the world around him, and about which he will have to be conversant during his whole life, would be giving him but a narrow and shallow conception of the universe, which is urged might contain all manner of things which are not now to be found therein. To open his eyes to these possibilities, and so to prepare him for all sorts of emergencies, is the object of this system of hypothetics. 
to imagine a set of utterly strange and impossible contingencies and require the youths to give intelligent answers to the questions that arise therefrom is reckoned the fittest conceivable way of preparing them for the actual conduct of their affairs in after life thus they are taught what is called the hypothetical language for many of their best years a language which was originally composed at a time when the country was in a very different state of civilization to what it is at present a state which has long since disappeared and been superseded many valuable maxims and noble thoughts which were at one time concealed in it have become current in their modern literature and have been translated over and over again into the language now spoken surely then it would seem enough that the study of the original language should be confined to the few whose instincts led them naturally to pursue it but the erwanians think differently the store they set by this hypothetical language can hardly be believed they will even give any one a maintenance for life if he attains a considerable proficiency in the study of it nay they will spend years in learning to translate some of their own good poetry into the hypothetical language to do so with fluency being reckoned a distinguishing mark of a scholar and a gentleman heaven forbid that i should be flippant but it appeared to me to be a wanton waste of good human energy that men should spend years and years in the perfection of so barren an exercise when their own civilization presented problems by the hundred which cried aloud for solution and would have paid the solver handsomely but people know their own affairs best if the youths chose it for themselves i should have wondered less but they do not choose it they have it thrust upon them and for the most part are disinclined towards it I can only say that all I heard in defense of the system was insufficient to make me think very highly of its advantages. The arguments in favor of the deliberate development of the unreasoning faculties were much more cogent. But here they depart from the principles on which they justify their study of hypothetics. For they base the importance which they assign to hypothetics upon the fact of their being a preparation for the extraordinary while their study of unreason rests upon its developing those faculties which are required for the daily conduct of affairs hence their professorships of inconsistency and evasion in both of which studies the youths are examined before being allowed to proceed to their degree in hypothetics the more earnest and conscientious students attain to a proficiency in these subjects which is quite surprising there is hardly any inconsistency so glaring but they soon learn to defend it or injunction so clear that they cannot find some pretext for disregarding it life they urge would be intolerable if men were to be guided in all they did by reason and reason only reason betrays men into the drawing of hard and fat lines and to the defining by language language being like the sun which rears and then scorches extremes are alone logical but they are always absurd the mean is illogical but an illogical mean is better than the sheer absurdity of an extreme there are no follies and no unreasonablenesses so great as those which can apparently be irrefragably defended by reason itself and there is hardly an error into which men may not easily be led if they base their conduct upon reason only 
reason might very possibly abolish the double currency. It might even attack the personality of hope and justice. Besides, people have such a strong natural bias towards it that they will seek it for themselves and act upon it quite as much as or more than is good for them. There is no need of encouraging reason. With unreason the case is different. She is the natural complement of reason, without whose existence reason itself were non-existent. If, then, reason would be non-existent were there no such thing as unreason, surely it follows that the more unreason there is, the more reason there must be also. Hence the necessity for the development of unreason, even in the interests of reason herself. The professors of unreason deny that they undervalue reason. None can be more convinced than they are that if the double currency cannot be rigorously deduced as a necessary consequence of human reason, the double currency should cease forthwith. But they say that it must be deduced from no narrow and exclusive view of reason which should deprive that admirable faculty of the one half of its own existence. Unreason is a part of reason. It must, therefore, be allowed its full share in stating the initial conditions. End of chapter 21